Our Father in heaven, now we come to uh, the Word of God and we pray that uh, we would never take this for granted that you have in fact spoken to us. The very God of the universe has given us something to read uh, that communicates to us perfectly and effectively uh, that which is true about him, about us, about life. And so we pray, Father, that as we take it up this morning, we would do so in such a way that would honor this word and honor you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 3. I want to read verse 14, beginning with verse 14 in chapter 3, verse, through verse 5 of chapter 4. 1 Timothy, please, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul, one sent out by Jesus, writing to his son in the faith, as he calls him, Timothy, who's the pastor of a church in Ephesus. Hear the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, we're back in First Timothy. We took a bit of a hiatus from working our way through this um, this letter that this apostle has written, uh, that's our normal M.O. Normally we take up large passages of Scripture, books of the Bible, work our way through them. We often, as we did this past Easter season, this Holy Week time, take time away from that and uh, consider these great events in the life of Christ around what the church has historically called the church calendar or keeping time by sacred time, that is, considering the advents of Jesus, the passion of Jesus crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, uh, the ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we do that from time to time. We did that this particular Holy Week, Holy Week season. So now we're back in First Timothy. Now we've already taken up some of what I read. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, when we first began this letter, we, we began really right here in chapter 3, taking up verses 14 through 16, because that helped us to see why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And, uh, and, and so he lays out his purpose, and he writes out the purpose to Timothy, that his purpose was uh, to tell Timothy how he, Timothy, ought to behave or conduct himself in the life of the church, and how we ought to conduct ourselves in church as well. That is, what's it mean that we're church? What's it mean that we live together as believers in Jesus, as followers of Christ? What's that really mean? How, we t- how do we t- t- to live together? And so Paul says to Timothy, I'm going to lay that out, not exhaustively, obviously, 
because it's just a short little letter and there's lots that we do. There's more in the scripture about how we're to live. But, but, but here he says, Timothy, I want to tell you while you're in Ephesus how you are, you are to behave, how your church is to function, if you will, how these people are to really live together. And he does it really by defining who we are. He says, you're the household of God, meaning that God dwells among you. If you're a house, then you're the very dwelling place of God. And he says that since you're a house and the household of God, that God is your father. Uh, and he's the perfect father. Perhaps you didn't have a perfect father. I am not a perfect father. I'm not the perfect model of who God is to my children. And some have had even less perfect fathers. But, but this father, this father in heaven, is the perfect father. And he says, you're mine. You belong to me. I dwell among you and I am your father. And you can trust me, I'm with you, I see you, I care for you, I discipline you, I, I love you, I provide for you, I protect you, all of that. That's, that's who you are, you're the household of God, the, 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 the very uh, living God, he says. I see, I hear, I act, I respond, I interact, all of that. And not only that, then he goes on to say, who, what we're to do, we're to be, if you will, the pillar and buttress or support of the truth. In other words, he says... I've entrusted you with the truth. You as the people of God have have given you this truth. And you are to guard it. You're to protect it. You're to make sure it's pure. You're you're not to do anything to dilute it. You're you're to make certain that this truth that I've handed off to you, that I've given to you, that you're entrusted with, that you're good stewards of it. Because you're to guard it. You're to protect it. And also, of course, you're to proclaim it. I've given you this truth to hold, if you will, for the world that the world might know this truth. So, so you need to proclaim it. And in your proclaiming of it, of course, you need to believe it and live it. So he says, this is that truth. That's who you are. And then he goes on to say, the mystery of godliness is great. That is the mystery of this truth. That is what is true of God. This, this mystery is great. It's a mystery in the sense that we wouldn't know it unless God revealed it. But he does reveal it. And you'll notice what he puts here in this sort of form of, 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 of like a hymn, if you will, where he puts this mystery of godliness, it's all about Jesus. He says, if you want to know this truth, you need to understand these things. Know this one who is Jesus, the Christ. Remember last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we talked about the fact that uh, Christianity is Christ. If you take him out, we haven't anything at all. He had to be who he was in order to do what he claimed to have done. No one else could be that. No one else could do that other than the one who is the bread of life, who is the light of the world, who is the door, who is the good shepherd, who is the resurrection and the life, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the true vine. You see, he had to be that in order to do what he had done. And so all this is about Jesus. Paul writes, here's here's what we need to, to hold to. This is what we've been given. He was manifested in the flesh, that is, God became flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit, that is, as Jesus lived his life, we saw the very power of God upon him as he did miracles, as he taught. Uh, we, we, we see that he was vindicated by the Spirit as well. At his resurrection, the Scripture said that he was declared with power by the Holy Spirit to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. That was the declaration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he really is the Son of God. He was seen by angels, attended to by angels in various times in his life. 
But he was seen by angels as risen. You remember it was the angel at the tomb that said he's risen from the dead. Do you remember his ascension? There were angels saying, what are you looking at? This one who is before you has gone into heaven. He'll return. Angels seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nation. That's what the, the church did with this truth. They proclaimed it. It was believed in on the world. That is, people actually believed this. When it was proclaimed, it had such power and such authority in their lives that they believed it, you see. And then he said he was taken up in, in glory. And yes, most certainly as, at his ascension. But there he is in glory, ruling and reigning, and one day will gloriously return. He says, you must hold to this. We've already thought about that some months ago. Now Paul says, however, there will be some who will fall away from this truth. You remember when we were back in chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, because you've been given this truth, you've been entrusted with this truth as the church, deal with those who are teaching that which is false. But now he says, even in the midst of that, remember Timothy, remember church, that there will be those who, who fall away. That's odd to us, but, but we know that to be true. We, we know that in the experience of our own lives, we can count those that who were once among us, you know, who once proclaimed faith in Christ and yet have fallen away. And we wonder why is that the case? Now Paul begins to lay that out as to why that is true, the very source of that, and how it is that we can keep from that happening in the context of our own lives. Uh, Paul speaks with a tremendous amount of confidence. Notice how he puts it in, in verse 1. He says, now the Spirit expressly says. Paul doesn't always use those kinds of of introductions to what he's going to say. He just usually says it. There's this curiosity as to why he puts it like that. Why does at this point in time he says, well, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Well, I don't know exactly why, but, but here's my guess. And my guess is this, that he's about to talk about things unseen. He's about to talk about demons. And that in the spiritual realm that is evil that we cannot see. And so we might want to ask Paul the question, how do you know this since none of us can see this? None of us can see what's going on. And Paul, I think, would say, as he says here, well, the Spirit says, that is, there is one, this Holy Spirit, who is unseen, who sees that which is unseen to us, and he's told us what really is going on. This is this revelation. He says, this is really what's happening in the midst of this. And he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, I read that and I go, whew, must not really apply to us. Clearly it didn't apply to them. Latter times, I mean, that was 1900 plus years ago that Paul writes this. But, but, but Paul acts as if he's writing right to them. He says, in latter times, and then he explains all that was happening in Ephesus in this context. Because you see, the latter days, the latter times, the last days began with the coming of Jesus most especially in his resurrection and ascension. You see, the Bible uh, delineates time like this. There was the time before Messiah, time now that Christ has come, time when he returns. And we're living in these last days. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he quoted the prophet Joel, who was talking about the last days, and Peter was saying, well, this is it. The last days are now here. The author of Hebrews says that in previous days, 
that God has spoken to us by way of the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. And so this was for them. This is for us. Those were the last days. These are the laster days. And here we are. That's what Paul meant for Timothy. It means for us. And he means, even as he says to him, these very sad words, some will depart from the faith. Sad, of course, to us. The Holy Spirit had already spoken that, another context, through others besides Paul. Uh, certainly our Lord Jesus in Matthew in chapter 24, as Jesus is with his disciples and he's speaking to them uh, of life, verse 9, he says this, then, meaning after his crucifixion, resurrection. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul knew this himself. He had spoken this to these elders at Ephesus. You remember we've spoken of a number of times Paul's meeting with the elders from Ephesus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 20. In verse 29 there, Paul is speaking to them. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore, be alert. The Apostle Peter knew of this. It was not new news for him, really. In Second Peter, in chapter 2, he writes this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The Apostle John knew this as well. In fact, even in his own fellowship, he had experienced this. He writes in 1 John in chapter 2, verse 19, of, of some just like those, those who were false teachers, those who had fallen away, it appears, he writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. And so we see that in the midst of church, this falling away. When I read of this, I can't help but think of the parable that Jesus told, we call it the parable of the sower, maybe best the parable of the soils, I don't know what title to give it really, but you might remember it, he speaks of the word of God going out, essentially being sown, and, 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 and there's a couple of outcomes which we understand, and, and quite frankly, a couple of outcomes that are rather confusing to us. The two outcomes we understand when the word of God is being sown is that it's some people are just simply unreceptive to it, and they just simply don't. Don't believe it. And that's that. And then there are those who do receive it. And they believe it. And we say, 
Yes, I understand that. I've seen that too. I've seen people walk faithfully with God and see the fruit of their lives, of fruit of belief that comes by way of confession and repentance and faith in Christ and, and all that that means in the context of life. They continue to persevere to the end. I understand it. But there are two in the middle that really do take our breath away. Or at least should. I mean, there's that seed, he says, that's sown in such a way, that word that goes out, and it appears as if people receive it and believe it. But, but, but then heat comes. That is the heat from believing in Jesus. He calls it persecution and tribulation. He says that comes and sort of destroys it. And we wonder, how can that be? But for there are many throughout the history of the church, even in our own day, some of us perhaps in various ways, feeling persecution, tribulation for faith and not falling away. So, so why is it true for some and not for others? Why? And then he also speaks of those who receive it, this word even, he puts it, Jesus does, with joy. But then the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come in. Choke it out. And we wonder, why is that the case? Most especially those of us who hold this truth that our salvation is a work of God, that it comes, as Jesus says, as a work of the Spirit who gives us new life. We're born again, and we're born again by the Spirit, and therefore, uh, God, we become united together uh, with God through Jesus. And, and here we are with him, and aren't we secure in him? Everything we read in the Scripture tells us that we are. Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of my hand. He says that I'm the good shepherd. I will keep you, and all of that. And yet we have this parable that he tells these disciples and he says, look at them. When the gospel is shared, four things can happen and two things will just confuse you. No doubt he told that to his disciples to prepare them for ministry, to prepare them for life in the context of church. And he says, now when this happens, don't be discouraged, don't turn away. I've already told you this is going to happen. You'll see this in the midst of people. They'll seem to buy in. They'll seem to believe it. And yet, as the Apostle John says, they'll leave because truth is they really weren't of us. And, and he no doubt tells them that so they can tell that to us to say, be on your guard. Be on your guard. When persecution comes, your faith will be tested. Know that. Be on your guard, the world will bring to you worries and you'll feel confounded many times because of what you're facing. Understand that is true. Don't fall away in the midst of that. Continue to trust in the midst of that. Understand that riches can be deceiving because they'll tell you that everything is well and that you can really do it and you really have enough. But, but, but never believe that. Because if you do, it'll turn your head, it'll turn your attention. And that's really the point, isn't it? The point is that there are things that test faith. There are things that test in the midst of our life together as, as church and, and, and come. And, and, and you get the sense that they're saying there's something else. There's something else other than Christ that can satisfy. And so in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulties because of our faith, we sort of tweak the gospel. So it's no longer offensive, so, so we're no longer hurt. But in the tweaking of the gospel, over time we believe the tweak and forget about the truth. And then you see we found ourselves outside. Where worries come, difficulties come, and we find a way to, to satisfy ourselves apart from trust 
in Christ and maybe the worry of loneliness and so we find a relationship that really isn't godly but, but really seems to satisfy at the moment. But you see, that relationship then will sear our conscience over time. We'll say, this is good when it isn't good. And we won't confess and we won't repent and we'll find ourselves really, as Paul puts it outside, fallen really from faith, the faith, this, this truth. It may be that over time we, we find that, that we're unsatisfied really by, by the gospel, by, by Christ. And, and, and so we seek that satisfaction elsewhere. It might be by watching something on television or on the internet or in a movie or whatever that, that we shouldn't really see that satisfies for the moment. But yet in the midst of that we become entrenched there. That becomes true for us. That becomes satisfying for us. And we find ourselves then missing that which is really true. It may be in the idol of success. It may be in the idol of popularity. It may be in the idol of what people think of us, that we try to work in such a way that that really becomes God for us. That becomes what's satisfying for us. And Christ, therefore, is no longer, and maybe has never really been satisfying for us. And so, in that sense, we turn away. And because we're rational beings, we create theologies all the time that fit our lives. And so if it's accumulation you want and self-indulgence you want, there's a whole theology of health and wealth that, that will satisfy you. It's really there. Now, that kind of theology really works well for healthy and, and ambitious people, by the way. So if that's true for you, it's going to work for some measure of your life. You can rationalize all kinds of indulgence, but it isn't true. Or those who say, that, well, God forgives, therefore I can really do anything that I want. And in doing anything I want, therefore all will be well. And, and of course, the, the problem with that is in doing anything that you want, if it's ungodly, if it isn't from God, then your conscience ultimately will become seared. That is to say, it will become burned, it will be insensitive to that which is good, and that is true because our conscience is that which approves, that which is right. And if we continue to live in such a way that and we say, this is right when it isn't right... And we'll never confess and we'll never repent. And we'll never know Christ. Right? It's a great danger in all, in all of that. Well, in Ephesus, interestingly, the, the problem was asceticism. That is, self-denial. Um, uh, there's this sense in which uh, the people there, for whatever reason, must have thought that if we can deny ourselves marriage, for instance, and, and certain foods, then, then, then that would certainly show, show our sincerity. That would say God would really mean business because we're denying ourselves these things which are good, these things which would make us happy, but we're going to deny ourselves them so that we're going to remain single as opposed to, to marry. And, and, and that probably meant some sort of sexual celibacy. Not only that, certain foods to turn away from. Now, could be that they had a theology that said the material is bad and so only the spirit is good and so forth. So therefore, we will do away as much as we possibly can with, with these passions of our bodies and we'll, we'll, we'll set them aside. We'll show that we're really serious about God and we say that's rather silly except we look in our own history and we find these things. We find celibacy being championed uh, and not marrying as being championed in certain uh, contexts of the Christian uh, history. Uh, we see also people denying themselves food. Many of you may have done that for Lent. Bless you. It didn't help you. It might have helped you if I had given chocolate up for Lent. 
I would have lost five pounds. That would have been good. But spiritually speaking, I'm not sure it would have done much for me at all other than confuse me by thinking if I deny myself something that God has said is good, and trust me, he has said chocolate is good. I would be confused thinking, oh, I'm earning it after all. I'm doing something where God is saying, way to go, Bill. I'm going to give you extra points for that. Things are really going to go well. They went through this time of of self-denial and Paul said, no, 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 you're missing it really. That isn't what it's about, this notion of self-denial. That's your way. That's what you think. And he says something rather startling in the midst of this. He says, I want to tell you what's behind all of this. He says in verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. See, the source of all this really comes from that world unseen, that evil world that really exists. Now, you know, again, uh, we're educated people and we're supposed to debunk all of this demon talk. And why? I don't know, because the world is so evil. There's evil all around us. Why would we think it would only be in the world that we see and not in the unseen world as well? And the scripture is so clear that this certainly exists. We see this in the life of Jesus as demons confront him all the time. Wasn't it amazing that most of the time Jesus' disciples had no clue who he was, but the demons always knew because they knew the battle that was really at stake. They knew what was going on there. You see, in the life of the early church, as as, as, as Satan fills uh, Ananias, we saw that before as Satan came with Judas. We, We know it in the context of of evil as it exists. So Paul says that's really the source of all this. So when this false belief happens, it comes from the one who Jesus said is the father of lies. And the primary lie that the father of lies tells us is that we can be like God. In other words, that we can be the ones who determine what is good and what is evil. You remember in the garden, God said to Adam, You can eat of every tree except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't that the fruit was poisonous in some way. You ate it and all of a sudden you became a sinner. It was the eating of it. It was the saying that, God, you've said not to, but I've said to. God, you've said not to because you're the one who determines what is good and evil. And you've said this is evil to do. And it's good not to do. And I've turned the tables on that. I've said, Adam said, No, it's good to do this. You remember the temptation that Satan brought Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say that you should eat of this tree? Did he really say you'd surely die? There's a sense in which he's saying, listen, God's withholding something from you for this tree. And he said, you know, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. That is to say, You'll be the one who determines what is good and what is evil. And they bought it, didn't they? And they ate. And in the eating of it, then since then, human beings have thought themselves to be the final arbiter of what is good and what is evil. We get to determine that. And that's exactly what was happening in Ephesus. The people were saying, if I do this, then God must accept me. If I don't do that, then God must accept me. But because this is how I understand it. And Paul is saying, no, 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 this is coming from the one who's the father of lies. This is the one who's saying to them that, 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 
that they can really determine what is good and what is evil, and that isn't the case at all. And so you see, many would have their consciences seared. They would declare that which was good, that which wasn't really good. And over time, they became to think it good. Thus, over time, they no longer would confess their sin. Thus, over time, they would no longer repent of their sin. Because why? Because it wasn't really sin. And then over time, theologies would develop to rationalize their way of life, that way of life. And then they would teach others and others would think, yes, this is true, this is great. I can have God in my debt. And I can earn it. No. No. Not true at all. And now Paul goes on to debunk all of this, to give the remedy for this. Notice in verse 4. He says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Hmm. He says, listen, uh, this theology of creation goes like this, that as creator, God is the one who defines that which is good. And God is the one who directs our lives into that good. That's what God does. God's the definer. God's the director of his creation. That's his right as creator, you see. And anytime we find ourselves being defined by anyone, anything other than God, that which is defining us is an idol to us. We're saying, that's true. That's who I am. That person, that thing, that philosophy says, that's who I am. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm the definer of everything in my creation. I will define who you are and I'll direct you. And you see, what happened in the Garden of Eden was that Satan, the father of lies, defined and directed. And we bought in. And God said, listen, if you're going to do that, if you're going to buy in, if you're going to be like God, then all hell will break loose on the earth. But rather than love, there'll be hate. Rather than justice, there'll be injustice. Rather than mercy and compassion, there'll be abuse. He said, trust me. If you're running it the way you think you ought to run it, it isn't going to work at all. And now he says, listen, how, how, how we get around this, how, how we debunk this, how the remedy for this is to really understand this creation, that God is the definer and God is the one who directs. And, and so we must live our lives like that. We must say, God, what, what have you made for us? And what have you declared to be good by your word? And then it is made holy by your word saying that it's good. And it comes to us, we could say it's sanctified to us, by way of prayer. Meaning we receive it by a prayer. And that prayer is a prayer of gratefulness. That prayer is a prayer of thankfulness. Now, we do that at meals, don't we? Sit down at lunch or breakfast or dinner, and I suppose uh, you pray. I hope you do. I hope you do that even when you're out and about. You may not do that, depending on the company you're with. You may just sort of quietly give thanks. But there you are, and we come to meals and we give thanks. Why do we do that? Because we're saying, in essence, to God, thank you so much. This is completely undeserving. I really don't deserve this, so thank you for 
providing this food for me. Now, when aren't we thankful? When aren't we thankful when we say grace? And I would answer it like this, most of the time. Because most of the time we think, oh, I work for this. I deserve this. I earned this. And you see, when we earn something, it really isn't a course for us to be thankful. We just say, yeah, I deserve this. No, we do it. And it's a good discipline for us to do it. And every time we should, as we come to give thanks, we should really do that and think it through and say, this is from God. I don't know about you, but there are certain certain times in my life when I was more grateful for a meal than other times in my life. I remember during my seminary days when Karen and I were living off of uh, mostly nothing. And uh, we sat down one night to eat um, green beans and bread. (laughs) Eh, Not a good day. We were very thankful for that. Because we said, oh yes, look at what God has provided here. Isn't it easy over time to forget that? Because you see, when we give thanks, as, as we know, we very often compare what we have with what we need. And for most of us, we have all we need, so we're in some measure thankful. Or we compare what we have with what we want, and even for most of us, our wants are fairly well satisfied, so we feel a sense of gratitude. But neither of those really brings it home. What we need to do is compare what we have with what we deserve to have. And when we get that, then you see, we really get it. See, we get heaven and we deserve hell. We get reconciliation with God. We deserve to be estranged from him because of our sin. We get his mercy and his grace. We deserve his wrath. And you see, when that's always in our minds, then we're really thankful. And when we're really thankful, it means we really get it. When we're really thankful, we really realize that this is of him and not us. That he's the one who's done all of this. That we're in his debt that we can never repay him. And he is not in ours. That there's nothing we can do to be such that he owes us. But in fact, we're to be grateful always to him. Tim Keller I don't usually quote people alive. I hope nothing bad happens to him. But I'm going to quote him today. Tim Keller, a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, minister in New York City, puts it like this. He says, Here is the way you can tell whether you're a Christian or just a moral person. A Christian, a religious person. A real Christian is a person who says, It's an absolute miracle that God loves me. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian. This is actually the acid test. There are two kinds of people that go to church. There's religious people and real Christians. And the way you can tell the difference is that a real Christian is somebody who sees everything that comes as a gift. In other words, a real Christian sees that you're totally in debt to God. But a religious person is someone who is working hard and making an effort, trying to be good, going to Bible studies, and and just say no everywhere and denying themselves a lot of pleasures and so forth. And a religious person is someone who's trying to put God in their debt. That's the difference. A religious person is someone who is trying to save themselves through their good works. A religious person is somebody who thinks that they're putting God in their debt since they've tried so hard 
And a Christian is somebody who who sees themselves in God's debt. And I would simply add, what we realize is we can't pay him back and we mustn't try. We must only receive. The problem in Ephesus is they thought they really could buy abstaining from this or that, not doing this or that. That was their word. They thought. Paul said, even that, however subtle that seems, doesn't seem all that horrible, comes from the father of lies. Don't believe it. In our tradition, we refer to this table as communion. Often we refer to it as the Lord's Supper. I think that's how it's listed generally in our bulletin. In some traditions, it's called the Eucharist. The word Eucharist means thankful. That expression, as applied to this, comes really from the night that Jesus was betrayed. You remember, the scripture says, after giving thanks, he took bread. After giving thanks, he took the cup. That sense of Eucharist, that that sense of giving thanks. What an amazing moment that must have been. Jesus took the bread, and the bread that was at the table, the bread of affliction, as they would understand it to be, and and, and Jesus gave thanks. In, In their minds, throughout history, giving thanks for that bread was saying, God, thank you for delivering us from Egypt. Thank you for delivering us from slavery. Thank you for protecting us in the wilderness. Thank you for being our... It was that kind of thanks, that that kind of thanksgiving that Jesus would give. But when he took that bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Give thanks. Give thanks for the very body of Christ given for us broken for us, sacrificed for us. He says, give thanks. On the basis of what? On the basis of the fact that it's a gift. On the basis of the fact there's nothing we can do to deserve him doing that. We didn't ask him to come. He just came. He did it. We can't do anything in order to receive it other than that, other than to receive it, other than to say, yes, I need this bread. I need what Christ has done. When we get that, then we make up no rules for ourselves. When we get that, we realize there's nothing we can do in order to earn this. We're thankful. Again, the scripture says that after giving thanks, he he took the cup after giving thanks. To imagine in the mind of Jesus, he was saying to his father, thank you that my blood will be shed. Been waiting a long time, Jesus might say, to do that. To show that kind of love to people. To show that kind of love, Father, to you. To save them. Thank you. And we receive it with thanks, don't we? How else could we receive it? How else could we come to this table other than saying thank you? We can't say, oh, I get to come to this table because I've abstained from. Mm -hmm. 
I get to come to this table because I've done. No. We come here because we say, I need this. I need what Christ has done. And I can only come saying thank you. I can't come. I don't leave anything on the table. I can't say, well, this is in payment for what? I just come saying thank you. And the apostle says, listen, you want to make sure that you don't get into this trap in everything. Ask, what has God created and is it good? Now, we've perverted so much. We can't simply say thank you and therefore I, I can take it. I mean, you can't say, God, thank you for this cocaine, right? God, thank you for this pornography. God, thank you for this. No, we, we can't say that. everything that comes to us is sanctified by God saying it's good by the word of God and by prayer by saying and lifting up our hearts thank you God so everything that we do everything that we view everything that we read everything that we say everything that we receive can we say thank you God to that this comes from you it's a gift from you and I give you thanks most assuredly this you see this is our check on Sundays when we come to hear the word, on Sundays we come to worship, on Sunday we come to receive, we say to ourselves, yes, this, this, I need this. I have nothing I can give to this. In fact, as we come to this table, you pronounce and announce to your family, to your friends, to any around you, I have nothing to offer God other than my sin. And I simply come to receive from him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Pray now for me, for us. That whatever we thought we were doing that was meriting your favor that we would now release and confess. Just our thoughts. Oh my, we might say, worse than that? The thoughts of Satan himself. So Father, I pray that there be none among us that would fall away because I pray that you would by your grace and mercy remind us continuously that all that we have is from you, period. So I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way that would remind us of the very presence of Jesus among us. And Lord Jesus, as you're among us, I pray that you would cause us to believe more faithfully, more strongly than ever before that yes, all that you've done is sufficient. And even if persecution comes, you're sufficient. Even if the worries of the world come, you're sufficient. Even if riches deceive us and try to deceive it, that we will know always that you are sufficient. That we need nothing other than what you have done and we trust alone in you. God, I pray you would work that in such a way around this table in us, even as we come. On this I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight. 
without hope except in his sovereign mercy, meaning you bring nothing here, nothing at all, but your sin. You receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. As you come to this table bringing nothing at all, other than trust that Christ has satisfied all of the law of God and he is your righteousness. And you come desiring to live as one who is indeed a follower of Christ, a confessor, a repenter, a believer in Jesus. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And if you want to be fancy, you can let go off in your head, Eucharist. Or you can just say thanks. Please come.